This is the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast, session number 119, Dr. Dwight Damon on hypnotism as a profession. Welcome to the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast with Jason Lynette, your professional resource for hypnosis training and outstanding business success. Here's your host, Jason Lynette. Welcome back. It's Jason Lynette here. And if you're an ongoing listener to this program, you've likely already heard the story as to where the origins of the Work Smart Hypnosis podcast came from. Uh, the first bit of it was a perhaps slightly negative, yet inspirationally positive at the end of it, that I ran a very active meetup group here in the Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. area for a while. And as I'm looking out in front of my meetup audience one week, uh, I realize, wow, it's the same people that we had last month. And there's the old phrase that the amateur changes their act and the professional changes their audience. So the goal was to build a thriving community, a thriving uh, place for people who are really moving things in hypnosis forward to have a voice, to have these conversations, if you know the reference, to, to have more of the Charlie Rose-style interview as opposed to the Tonight Show-style interview, where you'd go to a convention and the interactions with the people in the hallways, at the restaurants, at the bars, and the parking lots, and nearby restaurants, the outings that would occur would be just as valuable as what you would learn. And just as much as it's a goal to highlight some really exceptional things that are moving moving our profession forward. At the same time, there is an absolute delight of connecting with some of the pioneers of this profession. And that's where this conversation you're about to hear really came to be, that I reached out to arrange this. It took a little bit of coordination, uh, though here we are at session 119 and having one of the founding members and current president of the National Guild of Hypnotists, Dwight Damon on the program. Dwight started back in hypnosis as early as 1947-1948, founding the origins of the National Guild of Hypnotists back in 1950. And one of the real legacies of that organization is the assistance of helping to establish hypnotism as its own separate and distinct profession. So inside of this conversation, yes, I wanted to hear more of Dr. Damon's history of beginning with stage hypnosis, transitioning then into careers in other fields, such as being a doctor of chiropractic, and then coming back to hypnotism. And really to hear that story firsthand in terms of Well, here's this arc the chiropractor was on. Here's this place where it was this brand new thing that people really didn't understand, and now it's fully established. And the interactions with the founder of chiropractic helping to inspire this field of hypnotism moving forward. We're going to talk themes in terms of the NGH convention, the future of hypnosis, how it is the curriculum has changed over the years, what it is that we as hypnotists can continue to do to continue our story 100 years from now and beyond. And really, we're going to wrap up with advice for those people who the the younger generation, the, the new people coming in, and what is the mindset in terms of our skills and how do we practice clean? How do we practice ethically? And how do we always work towards that theme of ongoing improvement? So with that, I'd encourage you as always to head over, first of all, to the Work Smart Hypnosis page over on iTunes and leave your feedback for this program. Your ratings, your reviews help us to grow this. Also, I'd give a quick plug here for the upcoming National Guild of Hypnotists 2017 Annual Convention. 
Nation. Details can be found over at ngh.net. Again, NGH as in National Guild of Hypnotist.net. That convention is always the second full weekend in August, this year again at the uh, Royal Plaza Hotel in Marlborough, Massachusetts. Again, details over at ngh.net. I'll be there presenting several presentations. I'll be there in the exhibit area as well. And look forward to chatting with you, looking forward to meeting you in person. And with that, let's jump right into this outstanding conversation. This is session number 119, Dr. Dwight Damon on hypnotism as a profession. Well, my parents were owned an entertainment agency, among other enterprises. And uh, so I was, you know, interested in magic as, as a kid. I, I mean, I actually was working professionally uh, when I was 12 or 13 years old. It has it has an advantage when your parents are agents. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, they were able to give me a lot of bookings. And uh, the hypnosis just came along like everybody else. Back in, in the day, which is way before your time, there used to be uh, on most of the pulp magazines always ads for learn to hypnotize yourself and others. And Conradi Leitner had a big ad, full-page ad. And uh, so I bought the book. And um, it was more of a booklet. No, it was, it was a pretty good book. It wasn't bad. Not hardbound by any means. but And um, it was uh, based mostly on a breathing approach, you know, you have them taking deep breaths and so forth. And at the time I was in, um, let's say I was at Cushing Academy um, um, and uh, probably 1947 or so. And uh, so, you know, I was a student and I uh, practiced on fellow students and even uh, the dorm master. And I never really felt that I had anybody hypnotized. I, I, I probably bored them more than anything. <laughs> and uh, you know, but I was getting more proficient as time went by. So that was that was really when I began. And then when I went to um, college in Boston, I was attending Emerson College, and I was on my way to a uh, frat rush party, and I saw a poster in a store, and it said, "Learn genuine hypnotism." And, um, you know, so I said, well, then free demonstration, free lecture demonstration at uh, one of the hotels. Well, I had to go that way anyway, so it wasn't too far on my way. And so I said, well, gee, genuine hypnotism, maybe what I learned wasn't genuine. <laughs> and so I went and the uh, demonstration and so forth had already begun. And the person doing the demonstration certainly looked like a hypnotist. He had a goatee mustache and goatee and very piercing eyes and long hair, black hair, combed back. And he spoke what I thought was a dialect. And being at the time enrolled in Emerson College, one of the um, subjects that I was taking as a minor was speech and then also speech therapy, plus theater and, and things, communications, which was what I was really interested in. And I thought, gee, I can't place that accent. And so he finished his demonstration and had some literature, of course, back of the room. And um, I picked that up and headed on out to the meeting, the um, attorney meeting. And then when I got back to my room, I read it over and I said, well, gee, he's got a class right here in Boston. And it was $50 for the course. And it was done um, once a week. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I can 
talk to my dad and you know because I didn't have fifty dollars to spare and uh, as a college student I was just just getting by and so I did call home and said I want to take an extracurricular course and uh, he said well what is the extracurricular course about <laughs> I said oh it fits right in with what I'm doing beat around the bush a little while and then finally I just out. I said, well, it's uh, stage hypnotism. And he said, well, that would work well with your magic. So, yeah, go ahead. He said, I'll send you the money. So I had to make up the first lesson, which I had missed. And so Dr. Noah said, well, come to the Broadway Hotel, which was a theatrical hotel. He was staying there on such and such a day, and he would give me that first lesson in person. And so I went and found his room. The door was open, and I knocked on the edge of the door and nothing happened and I cleared my throat and nothing happened. He was sitting at a desk typing and I you know, I said hello and nothing happened. And then I stepped on the threshold, which squeaked, and he turned around and he greeted me and with this strange voice. And that's when I realized that he was deaf. And he was absolutely stone deaf. He had been a psychology uh, grad before the war and then came down with spinal meningitis. Uh, on a USO tour and lost his hearing. And so he uh, sort of had lost his nerve at the same time and sort of been uh, down. He was come to Boston. I, in fact, I wrote a book just about that and decided he was going to try to make a comeback in his life and decided the way to do it would be to teach. There were no schools around at that time that, that I knew about anyway. And he became my mentor and I took the course and dropped out of Emerson College and <laughs> went to work at the Hypnotism Center. And uh, we also had a road show, which in those days was a spook show. The closing days of, of being able to play theaters, they were putting in all wide screens. And, and so, you know, we, we still had some theaters. So we played the ATC circuit and others. And that was where uh, I had a parting of the ways with the college because... I was called into the dean's office, and he wanted to know why I wasn't attending class, just coming in to take the exams. He said, you pass the exams, but you don't attend class. <laughs> and I said, well, uh, I'm on the road doing shows. And he said, uh, what kind of shows? And I told him and so forth. And since theater arts was one of my majors, and he said, well, do you think you're learning more by being out doing shows than you would here in the college? And I was truthful. I said, yes. Getting practical experience, so uh, he didn't kick me out. I didn't quit. I just never went back, and uh, I moved into the hypnotism center and uh, uh, became North's right hand man. So, at what Actually, point? Yeah, at what point in that story, uh, beginning with the stage hypnosis, uh, was there perhaps a, a time of then working with clients? Well, I didn't really work with clients until mm -hmm. I moved in there. The hypnotism center was set up with a large lecture hall furnished mostly with Salvation Army uh, uh, chairs and so forth, goodwill chairs. We bought cheap. We had a platform stage we built, and that was our lecture hall. And there were two private offices off of that that were professionally uh, set up with, you know, leather settee and desk and chairs and so forth. I'm sitting in my and, office, uh, which has been furnished by either Craigslist or Ikea, so I can definitely uh, yeah, well, identify you know, with that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was, uh, you know, primitive, but it worked. I, and every Monday we had a free lecture demonstration. And so we got a lot of passes out all over town, you know, free admission. 
I mean, it was only 50 cents anyway to, to, if you didn't have a pass. The money, you know, when you think back that long ago to people uh, that might hear this blog, 50 cents, well, that was 1949. You know, 50 cents was probably worth more than it is nowadays. 50 cents nowadays is nothing. And $50 for the course of instruction. Uh, so, oh, that's cheap. And it was cheap. But for the day, probably $50 for the course might have been equal to $500 nowadays, 450 500 in that range. And so that's where I got my practical experience, both on stage hypnosis and on working with clients. I didn't get that many clients because they all wanted to see the big man. And uh, But I, I got a few. I got enough, and I was able to observe enough with him that um, I found, you know, I like that niche also. It was interesting. Um, we had several hypnotists. Orrin was one of them, or and it later became big deal. They took the course, and they were both uh, studying psychology at one of the universities, and then they became big, big guns as far as being the hired guns when there were hypnosis cases. They always were against um, people such as ours. Uh, if you weren't licensed, they were would testify against you and so forth. Uh, you know, it was a good experience, and uh, I learned a lot. Yeah, and I'm curious to ask, at what point in that journey, was it before or after that that you then became the, the doctor of chiropractic? Oh, it was way after that. I Well, I was working, having withdrawn from uh, Emerson College. This was during the Korean conflict. I had been exempt from the draft, but it was obvious that that was not going to continue, that I was going to get drafted. And I decided to join up, get it over with, and put my time in. And so I did. I enlisted. And uh, all my family had been seagoing uh, people, and I was going to join the, the Navy. Navy wasn't taking any recruits at that time. Coast Guard was, and their office just happened to be next door to the Navy recruitment office in Boston. So I joined the Coast Guard and became a radio operator. And that, I got a lot of stage experience then because when we were in boot camp down at Cape May, New Jersey, anybody who, uh, in the recruits who had talent were, was in the show. And of course I did hypnotism. And, and the next day I got a call, I was called to the phone, the local USO in the Cape May, and they want to know whether I would do a show. And I said, well, how much are you paying? <laughs> and he said, well, we're not we're going to pay you anything. And so I said, well, I get one day off from boot camp to come to town, and you want me to do a free show? I said, I don't think so. And I said, how much did you pay the, the champion checker player that you had there last week? Gave demonstrations of playing you know, 10 or 20 guys at one time and winning all the time. Hmm. And he said, well, we didn't pay any, anything because he's a professional. I said, well, until I joined the Coast Guard, I was a professional. So they decided they would pay, and I did a demonstration show uh, in Cape May, which really went over big. You know, as I traveled around to various bases and on various ships, word got around, oh, they got a hypnotist on board, and uh, we'd dock up in Argentia, Newfoundland, or down in Bermuda, and they'd say, well, uh, you know, they'd call the radio chief and ask him if I could uh, do a show, and he'd say, well, you got to talk to him, and so I did a lot of shows in various locations. Back at that time, I was really doing more shows than I was doing any type of a therapeutic approach. Although a couple of my buddies on various ships, I had one who was a stutterer, and he had an awful time talking to his girlfriend. 
Don Barth was his name. And, and Don said, can't you, can't you hypnotize me? And I said, well, sure. And so, you know, with the help of hypnosis, he uh, was able to conquer the stuttering problem that he had. And I saw him many, many years later. I was doing a show in, in Connecticut uh, for Pratt and & Whitney, and, and uh, he brought his family uh, to the show. He called me and wanted to know if that was me, if I was the same Dwight Damon that I was back in the Coast Guard. I said, I'm the same one. So he didn't pay to come to the show. He came as my guest. And uh, and he still hadn't suffered. So he, it was, you know, little memories like that that uh, yeah, mean a lot to a person when you think about it. Yeah. So uh, the, from there, then getting into chiropractic after surfing? Well, yeah. Then I when I got discharged, I had a brief spell where... My parents had never taken a vacation from their various businesses and asked me if I would help my brother in the real estate office. Well, I had grown up in the office downtown, you know, and as I was growing up, downtown was my playground. You know, we wandered around and I got to know the storekeepers and so forth in Nashua, New Hampshire. And so I was, you know, certainly aware of how the office was run. And I was pretty well aware of what you're doing in the real estate business and so I said yes, and I said, so I worked there with my brother. And when my parents came back, I stayed on another year or so, and we were doing shows and all, but I said I uh, wasn't really satisfied with being in the real estate business. So just before the big boom, where I could have become very rich, <laughs> I decided to go back to college and use the GI Bill, and we went out to Iowa. And uh, one of the ways that I paid my way through college, besides the GI Bill, which they don't give you an awful lot of money to to survive on, and uh, if you have a family, and I had a family, uh, so I uh, started teaching uh, out there because I worked with North, and we got his permission to use his printed materials, and uh, I, I ran courses there, did shows, and that was the way I paid my way through through chiropractic college, and, and then when I came back to New Hampshire, well, I uh, came back to a, a town that I, my family had moved to where they were operating an inn, and uh, I had lived there just briefly before I went to college. And uh, so now it was a little tough starting a chiropractic practice and being a hypnotist because it was a very small town, about 800,000 people in that range. And I think they were all waiting to see if, who went to the chiropractor hypnotist first and if he killed them or something, you know? <laughs> so, Which is not good it, for it, business, it turns out. No, no. Wow. And <laughs> so I could see the, from the handwriting on the wall that I was very confident that people would come to my chiropractic clinic and I had a, a large setup because they had uh, retired from the hotel business doing back to their real estate business and so forth. And so they had the inn, which had a large dining room. And I said, well, you're not using the dining room. Can I divide that up into office space? So I had a really nice clinic, about six rooms. And uh, again, I, it, I didn't really have a lot of clients coming in. So I fell back on show business again, dropped into the TV station in Manchester. And I'd been on TV out in Iowa. And I dropped in and made a deal with them to do a children's show on on Saturday mornings, and uh, that lasted almost 20 years. And uh, at the end, the chiropractic practice built up, unfortunately, so I really was hard-pressed for time. I mean, 
doing shows, doing the TV, and maintaining my practice. And then, thankfully, uh, uh, about 17 and a half years, they said, well, we'd like to tape your show uh, Wednesday evenings. I said, well, I have office hours on Wednesday. And I decided that uh, it was time to get off television, which was a very good thing for me. And so I did. I retired from the uh, the Saturday shows because, first of all, I couldn't get kids in at 9 o'clock at night on a Wednesday. <laughs> and I liked having kids in, in the show with me, you know. So when that happened, uh, of course, they changed their mind. Oh, well, uh, well no, we'll, we'll still tape it. Well, when you make a decision, you make a decision. And so that was it. And I concentrated then on on the chiropractic and hypnosis. I, and it was really at the point of people coming just for hypnosis, I finally said, no, if you are a chiropractic patient, then I will use hypnosis with you. But I, I wasn't soliciting outside clients. I would refer them to other hypnotists. So that uh, that went on and on. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. I had other business enterprises. And uh, I've had many, many lives, like a, you know, like a cat, I guess. <laughs> But show business was always there and always... Uh, yeah, and we have a tendency out. to bounce around uh, throughout the series here. What would you say it is about, as, as I interact with a lot of other hypnotists, there's a through line of very often the background in magic or even the background in theater that draws people into hypnosis. What do you think it is about those two fields that brings them into this one? Well, I think the fact is that if you're going to go into stage hypnosis, you should be an entertainer first. Mm-hmm. And I think the entertainers, they feel, well, I can do that. You know, if I can do a magic show, if I can do some other type of show, I certainly can do a hypnosis show. And I think many people who think, well, well, I'm going to learn stage hypnotism and and, uh, I'll make a lot of money that way. They don't always succeed because they had no idea about showmanship, which is really very important in being a stage hypnotist. And, you know, it's funny, when I first met Dr. North, he said, well, I hope, because he knew I was also a magician, and he said, I hope you don't get the disease that hypnotists and mentalists get. And I thought, disease? Holy moly, nobody told me about that. And I said, well, what, what disease? He said, they begin to believe their own publicity. <laughs> <laughs> And if you stop and think about that, and you stop and think about uh, many of the hypnotists that, that we both know, they got the disease. <laughs> yeah, they believe their own publicity. The world's greatest. If we had all the world's greatest hypnotists at uh, our convention, you know, we'd have a pack room. <laughs> so it's a career that, correct me on the timing, uh, started back in 1947 with hypnosis. Yes, more like. 1949 when I when I went to Boston to college. So in, in these years of being involved with hypnosis, I'd be curious to ask, how has your perception of hypnosis changed from where it was perhaps when you started to where it is now in 2017? Everything evolves and we certainly have changed. However, I do sometimes stop and think, well, you know, somebody will they'll say, well, I have a new method uh, to hypnotize. And they tell me what it is, and I'm thinking, that's not new. <laughs> you know, that, that goes way, way, way back. And we had one fellow who boasts as being one, I don't know if he's the fastest or the, the smartest or whatever, <laughs> hypnotist in the business. And he uh, 
we had an email blast going out to our members in which different people contributed different scripts. And we had put a script in there, and then he called, and wow, he was going to sue us. We stole one of his scripts. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, I'll get back to you in about an hour. So I went back and found that same script for many, many, many years ago in one of the books. We have a very extensive library here. So I said, let's photocopy this, and, and then we'll send it to him. Back then, it was, we faxed it to him. And uh, he, he was nice enough to call back and apologize. He said, oh, I, I, thought I, I thought I originated that. And I said, well, in this era, maybe in your mind, you did. But it was done before you ever thought of it, before you probably were ever in the business. There really is nothing new, I don't think. There's an amazing interaction I had at the NGH convention a few years back where I'm listening to these two people talk about this outstanding workshop that Don Motten did where he made the person's hand feel numb and then he pinched it and they didn't feel pain. And I'm sitting there and I chime in, yeah, that's glove anesthesia. And they're going, no, no, it wasn't. This was something different. He made their hand feel numb as if there was like anesthetic in it, like a glove. <laughs> they're using the exact language. <laughs> yeah. The metaphor that I often come back to is that there's, of course, new deliveries, new twists and new ways of combining some of the themes. But right. so often here's someone who would boast, I have 30 individual hypnotic inductions I've invented. And my metaphor is it's the birthday party clown who can make animal balloons because you know what, Dwight, I can make you any animal you want as long as it looks like a dog or a snake. Well, you see, the <laughs> thing is, when you, you mentioned that, I wrote the first uh, book that was ever published on balloon um, uh, twisting, they call it now. I called it balloon sculpturing. That was back in, I don't know, 1950-something. And uh, so... Uh, I very well uh, you know that analogy. <laughs> it's true, and and they they get very intricate now in balloon sculpting. It's uh, amazing what they do. But I found that making a dog for a kid was just as just as much fun for them as the ones who spend twenty minutes now making mm -hmm. uh, an Easter egg <laughs> basket with Easter eggs and a bunny in it or something. What's the correlation to the magic world? You could have the most incredible sleight of hand, yet the sponge bunnies will always win. Yep. Yes, Absolutely. <laughs> as we've just now spoken to about maybe 5% of the audience. So to rewind the story back once again, where did the origins come in? I know the part of the history is ongoing cycle of mergers and co-productions and associations. At what point in this history did the National Guild of Hypnotists first appear? Well, uh, the first uh, inkling we had was before I went in the service. And we had a Boston chapter, chapter number one. And then quickly we had, oh, I don't know, about eight other chapters across the country, all the way out to California. It started out more like a social thing. You know, in those days, I'm talking 1949-50, we didn't have any women hypnotists. Shortly thereafter, there were stage hypnotists. But at that time, there were no women in any of the chapters. And uh, they just didn't come and take courses. I, it was just a, a guy thing. You want to be a hypnotist? Yeah, okay. Women just didn't seem to be interested. Of course, that all changed. And everything evolves. And uh, the guild started out. See, I think our first president was George Rogers. He's deceased. Arnold Levinson was our first treasurer. And, oh, he showed up about 10 years ago, out of the blue, called up and said, hi, Dwight, and this is Arnold Levison. I hadn't talked to him for a long, long time, but it was like 
I talked to him yesterday. I said, oh, hi, Annie. Listen, how are you? And he said, well, I see, you know, NGH is having a convention down here in Massachusetts. And I said, yeah. So he came back into the guild and came to the convention, and he's passed now. There's only two of us that are still original charter members of the guild, and that's myself and Maurice Kershaw from up in Canada. And I hadn't seen Maurice for something like 40 years, and our first convention of the guild was in um, Danvers, Massachusetts, and I, uh, I was manning the front desk. And he had been at an AAEH convention because he joined that since the guild was inactive. Uh, and I'll get to why it became inactive in a minute. And he walked in. And I said, gee, you're a little bit late, Maurice. We You started about three hours ago. And he says, I haven't seen you for 40 years. And, and you, you tell me I'm late? <laughs> and it was like coming home. And the reason that the guild was inactive for a number of years was Dr. North, who was stone deaf, I mean, no hearing at all, disappeared all of a sudden. And that was in the days when we didn't have uh, email, we didn't have fax machines, and I was in Iowa in college, and the only way I corresponded was by mail. And, you know, I didn't, uh, all of a sudden, he didn't answer any letters, and when I got back to, uh, came back to New England, and when I graduated, who called some of the, the locals, and he said, oh, didn't you know? He disappeared. All of a sudden, he wasn't here. He, and, you know, it was like, well, what do you do, go in a puff of smoke? No, he just, he was there on a, on a weekend, and then he wasn't there on Monday. And so all of the goods in the, in the office and so forth, all were, went into storage, landlord storage, and were later auctioned off. And I didn't hear about the auction until afterwards because I think I would have had clues as to what happened to him. There are various stories that he went up to do a show in Maine and um, got hit by a bus. Mm. And then another one was he was went to Chicago and he got mugged. You know, And I've had people, members of the guild, one fellow, a very nice guy, and he said, listen, my sideline now, now that I'm a hypnotist, is going back to what I used to do. I can trace lost person. I will find him. And I said, lots of luck. <laughs> and uh, he, he never found him. So when that happened, it just fell apart. So there were quite a few years that nobody was doing anything with it. And uh, Elsom Eldridge, uh, you know who Elsom is? Yes. Elsom had been a boyhood chum. And he, I was, I'm older than he is, although he looks a heck of a lot older than I do. <laughs> Just in case he's listening to We'll this send him time. the first link to this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, he had gone on to other things. I hadn't seen him for years. and and uh, But he learned magic from me and learned uh, hypnosis from me. And uh, as I say, we hadn't been in touch. And... Uh, I got a call from him. He was moving. He'd been out in California and had moved back to New Hampshire locally. And uh, we got together at what was called the uh, Achievement Center. And he had seminars that he had in different subjects going all over the country. He had people on um, on taking SATs. You, you take this one-day seminar and they guarantee that you get 95% or better on your test 
on the SATs, college exams. He had one for postal employees to get work. He had, um, oh, I don't know, all sorts of things. And so he said, come on up and see what I've, what I've done, at these, what I've achieved, I guess, at the mm-hmm. Achievement Center. So I went up and uh, he said, I'll show you what, the, what really keeps this operation perking. And so he opened the door and it was in the air-conditioned room, young man sitting in there with the computers and screens and all that. And I didn't even have a computer. And he said, uh, how are we doing in Salt Lake City for this, uh, for tomorrow night? And he told him, and, and there was a, and he said, okay, Dave, well, how are we doing in uh, such and such a sense? He knew exactly, how did we do yesterday? And, and he could give them all these facts and figures. He said, and I said, that's getting all that from this guy sitting in this room at a computer? He said, yeah. So it was the germ of an idea that maybe we could revitalize the guild and use uh, the technology that he had. And I said, you know, are you willing to help me with this? And he said, sure. And so that's what we did. We worked out of his office and, you know, tried to line up old-time members that had been previously in the guild. We found a few, but not many. And, and so we got, bit by bit, we built a new organization. And... Uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, and one of the real legacies that comes from the National Guild of Hypnotists is the the work in terms of really defining hypnotism as its own separate and distinct profession. What would you say, was there a specific turning point where that really took shape in this history? There was, and that was my goal, because I figured, I don't want just a social organization. Mm-hmm. Being a chiropractor, I had seen, when I graduated from chiropractic college, there were still some unlicensed states, not many, I think there were three, Louisiana, Massachusetts, and so forth. And many chiropractors uh, who graduated uh, in those days, uh, who were from Massachusetts, opened offices just over the border in Nashua, which was where we held our first conventions. And so along coming into Nashua, there, one sign after another of chiropractors. What I envisioned from that is people would say, that chiropractic must be pretty good. Look how many chiropractors there are in town, you know? Because why would new chiropractors open up offices if there wasn't any business? And I thought, well, B.J. Palmer built the, the profession of chiropractic. And B.J., when I was in college, because he... He had a background in show business, loved show business, and it had become a hobby and so forth. But he liked me, and he uh, saw to it that I had a place on his TV station, WOC TV, which was just across the street from the college. And he tried to make sure the manager over there gave me little uh, paid gigs as well as uh, some freebies. And I got on onto a show over there, and I was a regular. And that, that began my TV career. And, but I had really become, I used to take a daily morning walk with the BJ because I dropped my wife at the hospital where she worked. And I would go and sit down uh, in my little Henry J car and review for the day's lessons. And I saw this little man walking by and I thought, hey, that guy looks a lot like BJ Thomas picture. Well, it was BJ. <laughs> so the next day when he came by, I got out of the car. I was waiting outside the car. And when he came by, I said, excuse me, uh, are you B.J. Palmer? He said, of course, look at, look at the monogram on my shirt. And I said, well, I'd like to talk to you. I introduced myself. He said, you want to talk? You have to walk. 
every every time I would get out to to walk with him, I mean, we had to walk around a huge city block. He owned most of the buildings there in that particular location. He bought up the land behind him. There was a girl's school, and and then he had a mansion that he bought next door. And and so it was really, uh, it was a good workout and and a, a fine chance to talk to somebody who had the same interest I did as show business and, of course, was, you know, the spark plug of building the chiropractic profession. And so much of what I uh, foresaw as building our profession was based upon what B.J. Palmer had done. And so that was it. And his, his the favorite, the motto I liked most of all that he had, he had a lot of mottos all on the walls in the, in the college. And... Uh, it's like uh, early to bed, early to rise, work like hell, and advertise. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I said, well, you know, I, and, and it's just recently, Elsa Mowder said to me, he said, I, I, somebody sent me some tapes of B.J. Palmer. He said, and you're, you're patenting uh, the guild of what we've been doing after the development of chiropractic. I said, right. And... Um, and so our goal was to become a separate, distinct profession. And, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't easy. We went through a lot of period of time where, uh, you know, there was a lot of bad stuff, um, expo-type articles, you know, and, and sensationalism and so forth. And, you know, so there were years that we were really trying to fight that, and, and we did. And we stuck to our guns, and we... we um, try and BJ was one of those people. He stuck to his guns. If he made a decision, that was it. If it didn't work out later, well, you can always readjust. But, so, and there's a beautiful pun inside of that I just heard. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so from that from that interaction with BJ Palmer, and then the development of the NGH and the growing of that separate and distinct profession, was there a specific point in time where? there was a, the ability to step back and say, okay, now we've got it. Now we just got to keep it going. Uh, so the, the formative years of perhaps here's the foundation, but then if there was a specific moment where there was the actual proof there in front of you, okay, we've done this, there's more work to be done, but now we've actually got something we can keep going here. There was, and I don't remember what year it was. And I remember where it was because we were, um, we were doing solid gold out uh, west. That's a, a short um, weekend that we do. And uh, it could have been in Vegas because that's mainly where we did. We did it in California a couple of times in the Florida once. And as I was speaking to the group, I realized that the group had changed. Uh, I mean, I didn't have somebody there sitting there with cowboy boots and cowboy hat or somebody with clown shoes or, you know, <laughs> weird stuff. And and I looked at it and I said, man, these people look like professionals. Maybe they finally got the idea. It's a profession. It's not a, it's not a game. It's not a hobby. It's a profession. And and I said, this is it. And somewhere in, in our literature, I, I'm sure I mentioned the date, more or less a year. And uh, and because we persevered and we didn't let people with, uh, you know, who wanted to put us down uh, overcome us, uh, we've been very, very strong in what we did. Um, we had, we had become uh, a profession. 
And, uh, I mean, we were recognized in, in the Library of Congress, citation, uh, you know, congressional um, citations and things like that, states, cities. And so I said, well, you know, we, and, and, I've, and you probably, you've been in this quite a while, and you probably have noticed that uh, we've gone away from from the fun and games, and, and we have people who are serious and, and want to help people and realize that, you know, we work with ordinary everyday people and ordinary everyday problems and uh, using hypnosis. So there's and a I balance, think, uh, an organization that, as you mentioned, started off a little bit more on the social side than over time morphing into what it is now. What, what would you say is the greatest strength of hypnotists gathering together? It is sticking with our professionalism. I, I believe that that's the most important thing because we have to we have to maintain that. And uh, you know, it's, it's socializing is great, but um, you don't want to do things that can be misinterpreted. With with the internet, something could go up on the internet now, and in a matter of seconds, it goes around the world, and it stays up there forever. You know, and we've we've had occasions where. For example, uh, psychologist Eichel was his name, thought he would uh, put us down, and also another psychology organization that he belonged to. And so he had a cat and gave the cat a social security number, credit card number, and so forth and so on, and then signed him up with the psychology uh, group. Then he signed him up with the West Coast Hypnosis Group, and then one in the Midwest, and then the Guild. Well, when it came in, we have a committee that looks at all uh, applications for membership, and we consider them, some we turn down. So they looked at this, and they figured, well, geez, already this, uh, I was trying to think what the, what the name of the cat was, I, I can't remember, but uh, it sounded like a real name. Oh, I was Zoe, Z-O-E, middle initial D, cats, K-A-T-Z, Zoe nice. the cats, you know, play on words. Mm -hmm. And, but already was a member of Psychology Association, had the credentials, was a member of a West Coast hypnosis organization, a Midwest uh, organization. And so why would we suspect that it was somebody who was being devious? And so we accepted the cat as a, <laughs> as a member. And the thing that gets me is that nowadays, because it stays up there, it's up in, you know, another and another. Yeah, uh, it pops up land. every now and then in conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And people will, will contact us and say, you know, how could you do this? How could you, you know, what they don't get is we were the victim. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, we didn't do anything wrong. We, and once we found out, of course, right away, the cat's membership was not renewed, <laughs> but it was, it's still up there. Well, there's two anecdotes so you, to share that, you know, there's so many different organizations that, you know, even this is not just within the hypnosis profession, that if you're a member of this one and you can show these specific credentials, you are not to use the simplest language, but basically paying your way into the other organization. Uh, what's always left out of that anecdote is that the cat was actually a damn good hypnotist, it turns out. Well, it could ah. be. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, and people say, well, if you were really victims, why didn't you pursue and sue him? And there there was a, a way we could have sued that, that person. And I said, no, it's just going to make it newsworthy again. Mm -hmm. And and he had his fun and, uh, you know, it didn't hurt us. And I don't care. I mean, but I just wish people who, who question us about it 
would not assume that we did something wrong. They would be smart enough to know that when somebody pulls a con on you like that, you're a victim. You know, and we corrected as soon as we found out, of course. And, you know, we went through that era when all the tabloids, you know, anything bad about hypnotism, they love stories like that. And we had one um, um, so-called uh, TV journalist who wanted to come to the convention. And so one of the people called from the station, in New York station, and it was a network station, and said, well, I'm a producer. Well, listen, I was in television for 20 years. She, that person called was a gopher, you know, trying to line up stuff for the show. And I realized, you know, the producer title doesn't mean it's not like a Hollywood producer. And I said, well, it's fine. I said, but it was a female. I said, does she plan to do a positive report on our convention? She said, well, we don't promise you anything. And I said, well, I can promise you that you can't come. How's that? <laughs> and she said, well, it's a public place. And I said, not when we are there. In our contract, we have the run of the entire hotel, the grounds, the parking lot, all of it. And I said, somebody else already has the exclusive to do a, do a TV uh, um, reportage, and uh, which they did. So, and it was a friend, you know, who was going to do good stuff. So, you know, we never we never gave in to that type of thing. And, you know, if they wanted to dig up garbage, go dig somewhere else. <laughs> so the a couple of points I'd love to, to hit on before we wrap up here for this morning. Um, there, there's a ongoing evolution of everything. And uh, chat with me for a few moments about why it's important for us to update that term of hypnotherapist, in your opinion. Well, the reason we got away from hypnotherapist is quite simple. We were getting a lot of flack from people in the in the world of psychology and, and psychotherapy. They have publications that end in hypnotherapy and uh, you know, the review of hypnotherapy and things like that. I don't know all the titles. And we didn't. We felt that why did we have to? First of all, a lot of people, laymen, say, "Well, I don't need therapy. I'm not sick." Uh, so. Why would I go to a hypnotherapist? Um, we just felt it was better that, to, to change what we call ourselves, and we felt consulting hypnotist was a good title. We went through a lot of titles. We did a lot of surveys, and uh, that's the one we chose, and it seems to have worked out well. And in recent publications, and I put this in my, my editorial uh, in the journal at times, uh, the psychology magazines uh, that they publish for their own members there was one issue, and, and I don't, I can't cite the exact one. I don't keep that in my mind. Said that there's no use fighting with the National Guild of Hypnotists anymore, because they have become too powerful. They have the AFL-CIO behind them, and you know they they uh, are they are here to stay. What we need, and they said, I'll paraphrase what they said next because I can't, I don't have it in front of me, but it was to the effect of. What we need to do is find out how we can get a piece of that pie and maybe control the training of all hypnotists. Well, that's not going to happen. So. Well, speaking of which, how has this, uh, there's a history of at one point uh, weekend courses and then expanding outwards. How has the training curriculum evolved over the years? We have constantly been, been working on improving it. And in fact, we're having a, a you're a CI, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Well, have you signed up to come to the CI meeting on uh, at the convention? Yes, I have. 
Okay, well, we'll be discussing <laughs> a lot of things they're going to be doing then. And, uh, well, I don't know. We've got something like 150 folks that have said they're going to be at that meeting. And um, so we, we constantly want to keep upgrading, but we feel we have a good basic course, and we don't sell uh, what the course is. We don't say the course is something that's going to make you a super psychologist, psychotherapist, hypnotherapist. It's a basic introductory course. And it's a good basic introductory course. And we've got people that are working with us to keep updating it day by day. And as a trainer, you'll be getting the upgrades as we, you know, you have some already. Ron Esslinger has helped a great deal. Carol Denica has helped a great deal. As we get things that we feel will be upgrading what we're doing, we're putting them into the course. And, you know, it's something you can't just do overnight. It has to be has to be an ongoing project. And yeah, and especially being that uh, that relationship of multiple professionals and uh, different yeah. opinions, different styles coming into yeah. it as well to provide that well-rounded training. Now, it's that phrase that I'd often come across that not everybody takes a hypnosis training with the goal of saying, sit down, close your eyes, let's do hypnosis. Uh, so to have that flexibility inside of it where people can come in where you know, we don't grow up necessarily going, I want to be a hypnotist and to have that experience of let me get in and learn it and see where it takes me. Oh, you mean you weren't born coming out of the womb saying, oh, I'm going to be a hypnotist? No, that came two weeks later. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of Baba, you said hypno. Yeah. Or we'll, we'll go with 18. So um, what th this can to keep this arc continuing, what would you say either needs to happen or is already happening to keep hypnosis thriving over the next hundred years? Well, I think we have to keep uh, building the professionalism of what we do. Uh, we, we've, we've created the fact that, okay, it's a profession now. And uh, so that's taking care of one element that is really against the center of psychologists and, and the you know, medical hypnotherapists and so forth. They pretty well have accepted our training. We had a, a, one of the presidents of uh, one of the organizations who actually came and attended the convention, incognito, of course. And uh, he said he, his report on it was it, it was really a good convention. They had a lot of workshops and seminars that were better than some we have and some that were just as bad. And he said, the only thing I didn't like about it was the Friday night entertainment. And I mean, this is from the president of, of you know, a medical uh, hypnosis organization, past president now. Yeah, so, so inside of that, what would you say the future of the NGH is as a part of that over the next hundred years? Well, I would hope that the NGH is going to keep on keeping on and do what, they, what we've done. Uh, you know, we established it as a nonprofit. Right now, we're in the in the midst of making it a trust, so it will be protected. Because I'm not, I'm 85 years old. I'm not going to be here forever. And um, no, but I've got good people that that will be here, and we're bringing up the younger generations. And we we're we're interested. We want people, uh, younger people. Uh, well, anybody younger than I am, but <laughs> we want younger people to uh, to contribute articles to become writers for. The journal or the hypnogram. People have ideas that they think should be added to our training. We we can't do everything immediately, but we certainly take all of these things into consideration, and we're open to suggestions. And if it's something that can be worked out with our board, then we, yeah, we'll we'll do it. 
and uh, you know, but change it does not come overnight. So we've been working very hard on uh, upgrading our, as I say, our teaching materials, and, and we have more changes that are that are ready to go. I think the guild is going to just be here forever. I hope so. And we've got the uh, convention coming up in Marlboro, Massachusetts, which this year, it's always the second full weekend in August, Friday, August 11th right. through Sunday, August 13th. What are, what are you looking forward to at this year's convention? Well, we have one new, new thing. I, we were at the Tara for 15 years in Nashua, uh, the Tara Hotel. And uh, I don't know if you remember back in those days. But, I came in right was, after, I believe, after the... Yeah, it was, looked like a castle, and they had knights' armor, uh, you know, all through the halls, and lots of places to sit down and chat. And one thing that we, that I have felt for quite a while, that we don't have enough place places to to sit and chat with people, and for people to chat among themselves. Uh, last year, I have a, I have a little table up near the historical exhibit with chairs where I can, you know, interview people and chat with them. Maurice Kershaw for years used to chat with people and, and develop his uh, columns from that. Uh, he doesn't write the columns anymore. So what we, I, in fact, we just had a meeting with the hotel yesterday and we have uh, the new thing is Kuei's Cafe. We've taken one of the uh, function rooms way down at the end of the well, they change, depending what floor you're on in the hotel, you're either in the west wing or the south wing. <laughs> I don't know how they do that, but anyway, it's down past the uh, the, the, the demonstrators, yes, the, the bookstore. And uh, we're, you know, we're, I was talking about the type of furniture I want put in there. I want it fixed up so people can go in and sit down from 7 o'clock in the morning uh, until they run out. We have pastries. We have free. I'm not talking to you get to buy them. We have pastries and, and things like that and fruit and so forth. And then during the day, we will have the hotel is going to actually have uh, a food service there, sandwiches and crudités and things like that. And uh, people can go in, grab a cup of coffee or a cold drink, sit and chat, have a good time. And uh, we've got um, all sorts of things uh, honoring uh uh, Kuei, so Emil Kuei. And I think that will, because there really isn't, uh, there's a very small area in the lobby. You know, you, I think you get two couches and one chair or something, <laughs> you know, and, and no place to sit and really chat. And I think that's very important, and that's one thing that we're trying to figure out how to do it. Halfway down, as you go down past the um, all of the ballroom uh, area, down to go to Kuei's Cafe, we have an area where they turn in the uh, slips from the convent, from the uh, presentations, a little alcove on the right. And we're moving that. That's going in where the gift shop used to be. So uh, all of our ticket takers uh, uh, and the different workshops will take those down to the uh, group that's handling the uh, compiling all that information in what was formerly the gift shop the alcove area, again, I've asked them to put, like a settee, a couple of chairs, you know, a little table, something, so people can sit there and chat. 
Yeah, which again, I think back, that's the important thing. Back to the origins, the opportunity just to have that conversation. It's where the the, yeah. or, the origin of this program is that you go to a convention and just these interactions of you're sitting at the tables, you're at the bar, you're at the restaurant, you're in the hallways, um, yeah. and the workshops would be great, seminars would be great, but to have the opportunity actually just to sit down and talk to somebody, that's a great opportunity. Well, I, I hope it works out. I hope people accept their, those changes. I think they will. Uh, I try to talk to as many people as I can. I had a couple of chairs right, oh, opposite the elevators, over, over to the right as you come off the elevators. And uh, one of our longtime members has taken one of them for his. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, listen, you got that little go-kart you ride around on. Why are you taking that chair where people can sit and talk to me? He said, because oh, I want to. <laughs> so I said, okay. I said, okay, Bob. It's okay. Yeah. And uh, that's when I moved up to you know, the historical exhibit. Dr. Damon, it's been excellent having you on here. I wanted to wrap up with uh, one question, though, something that you brought up a little while ago, talking about the younger generations as there's a constant flow of people coming into this profession. And this could either be answered in one of two ways. One could be the uh, the game of if I knew then what I know now, advice that you'd give yourself if you had to start all over again, or perhaps more uh, empowering would be for that someone getting brand new in all of this. What would be that advice you'd give them as they embark upon their career in hypnosis? All right. If they take our certification course, the one thing I want them to do is to be competent and confident when they graduate. And if they don't feel competent and confident, they need to tell the instructor. And, and I want the instructors to understand that should be their goal above all else, is that everybody that takes the course feels competent and confident. And... The, that is the beginning. The rest, they have to do what uh, Patricia McIsaac has been 28, 28 years in practice. She started out single woman, uh, knew nothing about business, and she went to rent office space, and the landlord said, well, how long a lease do you want? She said a month. Because <laughs> she, she said, I don't know. I've never been in business before. I don't know if... if I'm going to, well, she's lasted 28 years. She's one of our top instructors. And the one thing she tells her grads is whatever you do, do it. You know, have that confidence and do it. And I think that's the main thing is people procrastinate and they need to jump in and do it. And we try to supply them with all sorts of little things that they can use to, to get people interested. And, and, they, and I think... And I don't know if you'll agree with me on this, but when people ask about, you know, you just graduated, you just became a, a real hypnotist, you know, a consulting hypnotist. And some of them act as if they're trying to keep it a secret because I think subconsciously they're afraid somebody's going to ask them a question that they can't answer. There's no, there's no nothing bad is going to happen if you can't answer. You can always I'll have to get back to you on it. If it's somebody you're just in passing conversation, I, I you know, there's ways to, to answer a question without really answering it, if you know what I mean. Well, I'm trying to think okay. back. It was either 2011 or 2012 that your keynote at the convention, um, one of the themes was, I'm a hypnotist and I'm damn proud of it. Well, and that's the thing. Tell people you're a hypnotist. Don't hide it. I know you tell people. I put it out there. The name of the business is Virginia Hypnosis because I'm in Virginia and I do hypnosis. <laughs> yeah. 
and, well, and back no, to the hypnotherapy conversation, the, the wonders of looking at analytics on Google to find out three times as many people are looking for a hypnotist than they are a hypnotherapist. So, well, yes, I yeah. am a hypnotist. Yeah, and we didn't, I mean, when we made the change, uh, it wasn't done like, oh, today I think we'll change the name, but we're not going to be a hypnotherapist. It was done with a great deal of deliberation, of thought, of research, and of talking to people. And, you know, one thing that we do, and I'll just end with this, is that when we're out, uh, Don Martin and I are together, uh, or one time Don and Pat and I were together, and, you know, the waitress will see that we're having a good time. We're having lunch or whatever. And so if they don't ask us, we'll ask them, what do you think we do for a living? Well, I was with Don Martin, and this is our classic story. And the waitress says, oh, I don't know, you guys, a couple of used car salesmen? <laughs> she said, no. Real estate? No. You know, she took a few guesses. Vacuum cleaner salesman? No. And we said, we're hypnotists. Really? Do you stop people from smoking? And, you know, then it went from there. We were in a Denny's down in Florida. And, and they, we were the only customers there. And pretty soon the other waitress came over, joined in the conversation. Then uh, the manager came over. We even had the guy come out from the kitchen. I don't know if he was the chef or just one of the, one of the cooks. And they were all standing and we were talking. We talk it up. We tell people what we do. We ask. And if they don't ask us, we ask them to ask us. What do you think we do for a living? And I was surprised because Pat had been with us enough that all of a sudden we were out someplace and and she said, what do you think we do for a living? And the waiter says, I know what you do for a living because this guy you're with has been in here before. You must be a hypnotist. <laughs> and, and, and if you don't tell people, you have to tell. Yeah, I tell the story of my first Chamber of Commerce meeting. It's a roundtable speed networking, and it goes around the table. I'm a banker. I'm a realtor. I'm a banker. I'm a realtor. I'm a banker. I'm a hypnotist. And the conversation yep. stopped there, and that's all we talked about. And I'm I'm trying to find out about the other professionals. They're going, no, 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 we want to talk about you. <laughs> so it's and the advice that you get, to walk, you get to walk into the room knowing you have one of the most interesting jobs of anybody out there. People are fascinated by it. And, it's very, and if you're on a plane, I mean, I've had it happen where, you know, I say I'm a hypnotist, and you can tell the person next to me, didn't give a damn. He didn't want to talk about it. You know, and he wanted to talk about what he did, and that's good. I talked about what he did. But in the end, he went back to, you know, in his mind, he must have said, well, I told him all about me. And he said, well, you know, just what is it you do as a hypnotist? You know, so we got back to it. I didn't force it. And because uh, you never want to force it on people. Mm -hmm. And we've come up with little things like the little handouts, you know, the little uh, cartoon brochures and, and a lot of things just to get people talking about you and get interest. And, uh, you know, so that's that's the best thing we can do is to encourage uh, all our people to let it be known. Because the more people that they say, wow, there's a lot of professional hypnotists around, that must really work. You know? Then they're going to they're going to have to come somewhere, and they might come to your office. So. Outstanding. Jason Lynette here once again, and as always, thank you so much for interacting with this program, sharing it on Facebook, leaving your feedback over on iTunes, and the theme that Dr. Damon wrapped up on there in terms of 
getting out into your community and talking about hypnosis. One of the best things we can do in this profession is to be out there successfully helping our clients, putting on good presentations, and really being that ambassador for what we do. And that's the reason that I built Hypnotic Business Systems, because these skills that we would learn from our trainings are good, yet how good are they if we're not putting them into use? So too many people that I interact with are procrastinating, playing the game of, yes, ongoing training is important, yet playing that game of, I need that one more certificate, I need that one more piece of paper, then I'll be ready. There's a great quote from General George S. Patton Jr., which would simply say, a good plan violently executed now is better than a perfect plan next week. So with Hypnotic Business Systems, you get the all-access pass to the things that I've done to grow my six-figure hypnosis business, everything from the ground up. So if you're brand new to this and you need to find office space, you need to figure out your pricing structure. That's covered in Hypnotic Business Systems. If you're already working at this and yet you need to take that business to the next level, we get into concepts such as product creation, talking about topics such as doing webinars, doing podcasting, talking about some next level stuff such as Facebook marketing in such a way that actually can make you money rather than as massively expensive as most people are doing that quite badly. So it's anything and everything. It's Netflix for your hypnosis business. And I've priced it in such a way that you're able to jump right in, put the content to use. There's even some done for you marketing campaigns inside of it. So head over to Hypnotic Business Systems. Dot com. Get started today for just $47. You get an all-access pass to everything. Stream it, download it, interact with it. We've got a thriving online community, hypnoticbusinesssystems.com. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Thanks for listening to the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast at worksmarthypnosis.com. 